Hi friends, I'm Rob Voigt, and this is Protopia. This is a series of conversations with the people that are envisioning a better world and making it our new reality. We'll be talking about successes and failures, about next steps and those important first steps, and the inspirations and journeys that have brought us together in this time, in this place. And we'll find out where we go from here. Today, I'm pleased to share my conversation with my friend, Cormac Russell. You'll hear Cormac's thoughts about the COVID present world we're entering and how we can flourish forward fairly. And as we awaken to the fact that it is communities that produce health, we'll also see that community is no longer a nice to have, but a necessity. Cormac is the Managing Director of Nurture Development and a faculty member of the Asset-Based Community Development Institute at DePaul University in Chicago. His decades-long commitment to ABCD has seen Cormac working in community with enduring impact in dozens of countries. Speaking with Cormac is always a joy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Rob, hi. How are you? Thanks for joining me. Yes. That's a pleasure to be with you, Rob. Yeah, it's wonderful that we can have these virtual face-to-face meetings to build connections and, and all things community, which is clearly what what you do and where your passion is. So how, how, have, how have the last 12 months treated you, maybe on a bit more of a personal level, but also how it relates to the work you've been doing? Hmm. Well, be, before the lockdown, actually, just as pure happenstance, I... Uh, left Toronto mid-March, actually probably near the end of March, just as you guys were about to go into your first lockdown. So of March 2020, that marked about maybe 20 years of pretty much nonstop travel. And um, I could never have anticipated that I would get to spend an uninterrupted year in my own community. But before that time, I was pretty much uh, like the missionary on horseback all over the place. You know, I, I, I shudder to think of the, uh, my carbon footprint, but it was pretty <laughs> significant. I, I, I broke the million mile barrier a few years back. So incredible amount of travel, which was taking, um, it's funny how you adjust to things, but it was probably taking a very incredible toll on my own health. Although I didn't see it, I'm made of, of kind of hard, uh, hard cowhide. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like a lot of men, I think you just don't quite know that you're uh, eating the seed corn until it's too late. So the year has been amazing. And, and it's been taking it. I think it took a lot out of my family as well. But again, they're stoics. So everybody just got on with it. So over the last year, I suppose there's a number of things that I'm appreciative of. One is just being at home. You know, and the others being in my community. I am I'm interested in what you were saying there about being in your own community. So what does that look like in your own community? What is your in the past your experience been there and your support of that? And how has that maybe changed now? Well, I think family is a is a seems to me to be one of the royal roads into community life. So I have a young family. I have two families, actually, 
for from my first marriage my lads are, are grown up uh, I have a 26 year old and a 23 year old and indeed the world the ireland that they grew up in was in so many ways remarkably different actually to my um three younger lads from my second marriage uh so i have twins of eight identical twin boys and then i have a 10 year old and then 23 and then 26 and i have uh, two granddaughters as well so right across the spectrum you can see for example one of the great measures of childhood is do these kids get to play without adult supervision uh, or at least their parents supervision in the community or is it all play dates and screens and so forth? And as I can trace that that difference. But for me, community life first and foremost, because I have five boys, has largely been through them. They're going to sporting activities, going to school, their friendship groups. And then in terms of my own experiences as a neighbor, you know, we have a very, very close-knit community here where we live in Klansky in Dublin, in the south of Dublin. Uh, so Dublin, like a lot of cities, is kind of it self-consciously defines itself by its relationship to the the River Liffey. Uh, so you have Southsiders and Northsiders. So I'm on the south side, about three, maybe four kilometers, give or take, to the south side of the city. Um, in a reasonably suburban, nice, you know, in the sense of very pleasant neighborhood, plenty of green, plenty of lovely people, and. It's been interesting, particularly over the last year, plenty of people who are at a stage in their lives when it's very, very easy for them to become quite socially isolated. You know, the housing that we're in, I think, came in around about 54, 55. So a lot of the people who would have moved in as young married couples are now living alone, um, sometimes near family, often not. So it's it's interesting because you also then have this influx over the last 10 years of young couples who've been buying up properties, you know, of people who, who have since sold on or are deceased or whatever. So it's a mixed community in terms of age. We're starting, you know, I think I've single-handedly contributed to the uh, demographic, the demographic uptake uh, with my five kids over time. But um, I think they're the two entry points for me, concern about people who are growing into the third stage of their lives and maybe, you know, are quite isolated. I, that that matters to me. It really kind of switches me on. I want to kind of show up in their lives and then my kids' lives. And they've been really ab abundant ways into community, into meeting my neighbours and into staying active and showing, showing up. So even if I'm travelling, like when my bag hits the floor at whatever time, midnight, when I get in on Friday, I know come 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, I'm up, the kids are up, we're going somewhere, we're going to a sporting event or, you know, uh, whatever it might be. So in that way, it's been very grounding, but it's much more so over the last year, particularly when we've managed to get out of this very strict kind of lockdown. Once we got past all the fear of, yeah, what's this all about and what does this mean and who can we touch and what can what can we say and all of that. <laughs> um, so once we got a sense of actually we can be together while remaining physically apart and then figuring out how that looks, it's been a really interesting year in terms of doing community and living life together in the neighborhood. And, and that's the scale at which nearly all our lives have come back to, the scale of neighborhood.
kind of riffing off the idea that we often hear from the engineers referring to the design vehicle, right? Which is usually a bus or a truck and dictates all the urban form. I always try to remind people that the design vehicle is the human being, it's the person, right? We need to understand that. And when it comes then to community, then how do those people interact with each other? And what is what does that look like? Uh, so it comes down to human-centered design on all things. And actually when you referenced transitions in life, particularly uh, folks that are in their senior years, for a lot of good reasons, we've heard a lot about righting social and racial wrongs, issues of inequity and all that. One area that I think has not come up enough yet is that how it relates to seniors' populations, right? And that's not to diminish the extraordinarily difficult and, and tragic and, and terrible things that have been done to folks based on race and socioeconomic um, circumstances. But I'd like to hear more about what your thoughts are about how do we make sure that we're going down a better path with how we relate to the seniors uh, in our communities? Because there are cultures around the world that uh, venerate them. But we, in the broad sense of the West, kind of lost that. It seems like once again, we're about to do immeasurable damage to ourselves culturally and socially. And it's a, a slow moving train wreck that we should be able to avoid. Well, there's a couple of different things I think we need to attend to. See, one of the challenges is if cultural perpetuity is not your ambition, if uh, self actualization is your ambition then you won't venerate the older people because essentially they're moving to the trash heap at that stage. Your whole value set is around the use value, uh, the extractive value of the people, because that's the way you treat yourself. You know, So one of the problems, I think, with human-centered design, even though it's better than you know building or bricks and mortar or whatever, is that we are fundamentally locked into this narrative of speciesism, where we actually think as one of eight million species on the planet that we know of, that we're better than everything else and better, you know, all other species. So we've kind of got this dominion-like attitude. And then when we're finished kind of having dominion over uh, nature, we start turning against our own young people and older people as a case in point. And we hardly ever see the danger of it. You know, so in 1916, or sorry, let me go further on here, uh, add another 200 or 100 years onto that in 2016 in the primaries in the US and the Brexit vote in the UK. I think one of the um, underreported phenomena that really was a driver of how people showed up and voted in both instances was the very clear divide between young people and older people sharing life together in neighborhoods. So if you go back to 1996 and you actually look at what was the average experience of a kid growing up, you know, one of the features would have been they would have had a grandparent either living with them or nearby. And they certainly, if they didn't have a grandparent, they would have a proxy elder uh, in the neighborhood. So there was much more of a a reality where older people and younger people were doing community together. And that has a quite a profound impact on how those that vote vote. And those that vote tend to be older. 
Um, we know this statistically. So one of the things that's quite interesting about the 2016 phenomenon, both in the primaries and in the Brexit vote, is for the first time in both jurisdictions, there was a very clear voting around uh, self-interest. So those that voted were voting largely around what, you know, what they needed to do in their mind, protect their pensions, rather than what they needed to do to think about the future and the perpetuity of young people that they love and care for. And I think part of that is, is because we've designed older people out of communities and we've also designed intergenerational relationships out of communities. And there's statistical evidence for this. But, you know, we're so busy rightly blaming Cambridge Analytica and recognizing slowly now that Facebook, in many respects, is actually a crime scene uh, in terms of mm -hmm. data harvesting. But there are other phenomena at play. So one of the things that I think is really helpful is to think about the neighborhood as the design vehicle. And it's almost like a sleight of hand, because, of course, I want human-centered design. So it's kind of hard to say both at the same time. So I have to separate them out. By no means is this, a, a, I think, a discussion of simple semantics. It shifts your thinking. One of my favorite lines to quote is from Marshall McLuhan, and that is that the solution always lies inside the problem, not outside. You are right that taking it to the human center, that the person is the design vehicle, takes you a, a good part of the way. But I am interested to know where this next yeah. part is. And I want folks where to really yeah. keep that yeah. in mind that there, there is more, and these are important words. So, so tell me more about how the, how the neighborhood sure. is the design vehicle. And just by way into this, where, where I'm going with this, just for transparency, is to try to make the case for not taking a single issue focus. Okay. Excellent. Um, and, and, that, and, and I mean, even the human is a single issue. But at the moment, understandably, we are very concerned about racial inequity, for example, and particularly structural racism. And rightly so. Okay. It's interesting to take that. So look at Milwaukee, who are taking racial inequity seriously and are taking the neighborhood as the lens or you know you could say arguably i guess they're taking a public health lens approach to this and saying you know, why is it that it's the same 10 to 15 neighborhoods that are producing the alumni of all of our prisons and it's the exact same 10 or 15 neighborhoods that are producing the alumni of all of our programs with regard to loneliness or mental health issues and so on and so forth in terms of recovery or, you know, choose whatever malady you will. And, and the reason is, is because when people live in places which are poverty inducing, both in terms of, you know, living with economic dignity uh, or without economic dignity and, and living just in spaces that are not good for the soul, uh, the mind or the heart, it does a thing to a body which is not good for it. So, in many respects, it's interesting to look at what Milwaukee are doing now in the name of police reform. They're saying, well, what would happen if we took some of our policing budget and we moved it further upstream and gave some resource to those 10 or 15 neighborhoods so they could employ community builders, community organizers to begin to really tap into the assets of the neighborhood. Now, I think there are other places that are doing police reform and they're trying to suck salvation from their own thumb. So it's all about let's you know 
uh, retrain our police officers so they're better police officers. So, you know, they're not as likely to be um, insular and hostile and sometimes violent and sometimes murderous. And that gets us so far, I think. But Audre Lorde, the great feminist and activist, once said that there is no point in trying to make change happen through single issues. We are not single issue species. We don't, that's just not. So even if you take it at human level, it, it doesn't make any sense. So yes, by all means, let's address these issues. Let's care about these issues, whether it's older people or indeed it's issues around racial inequity. And I think we have to address these issues sometimes because our focus is such that we have to pick something and really attend to it. But I guess what I'm saying is, is let's attend to it through a lens that allows a holistic rather than an elemental way of going forward. You know, so often I think we take older people as a case in point. When you actually take a community approach to it, you say, we've got all of these people with incredible gifts and incredible contributions. Incidentally, even economically, a lot of people think that older people aren't contributing, are, are net takers of the economy. In fact, they're net contributors to the economy still in Canada, in Ireland, in the UK and, and other places as well in the main. But notwithstanding, they also have non-monetary contributions, which are incredible and largely kind of go left. Uh, they're left fallow, aren't they? You know, when I speak to people in my neighborhood who um, are at a stage where they're not sure whether they want to continue to be actively involved, to participate in community life. Some of what they're doing may well be putting themselves out to pasture. And forgive me if that term seems odd or strange, but it's a term I actually picked up from one of my neighbors who's, who's 90 and actually used it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's my time to go out to pasture now. And this is a guy who worked uh, in RTE and was part, RTE is the, uh, the terrestrial uh, television and radio company here so it would be the equivalent of your cbc mm -hmm. and um he was in the orchestra so traveled all over the world he, you know if you listen carefully you can still hear him playing the piano in his house so here's a guy who's got a huge amount to offer but uh, he's he's feeling lonely and and i think also when you listen to him and chat with him i think what he feels most of all is useless he's unsure of how he can be useful in his community. And I think our job as neighbors, this is the act of neighborliness, is at that moment that your neighbor feels useless, that you commit an act of revelation to help them see that they are useful, that they have a contribution, that they have a gift, and that it's needed, it's required. They're not surplus to demand. So to my mind, if you're doing that, it doesn't really matter what the age of the person is. You know, like if that's your fundamental precept across the life course, then all means all. And whatever the issue that is getting in the way of us discovering that spark of genius that the person has to contribute to the well-being and the cultural perpetuity of their community, which could be diverse. I'm not, I'm not talking about ethnic culture here. <laughs> I'm yeah. talking about culture we, in, we invent. I don't know what the culture of a preferred future will look like when our sisters and brothers of color and our first peoples really believe that they are respected and that we respect with them all our relations. I don't know what that future looks like because we're not there yet, right? So that takes moral and mythic imagination. It also takes trust in ourselves that we'll get there. 
right? Yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah. and it's, I don't like phrasing it as, as, you know, optimistic versus pessimistic. I look at more as trust. That's, you know, how we can move forward. And then that's very much about why, you know, this podcast has the name it does. It's about those of us that are trying to make the world a better place, one incremental step at a time. And it's interesting, even in the story you were just telling, it's in your day-to-day life, the example of how you are trying to be, as you often refer to as being an alongsider with this gentleman, being there with him and for him, try to understand, well, where, where could his place be? And, and maybe provide a spark of an idea because you see that there's someone there who maybe their spark isn't as bright as it used to be. So you're exercising that in your day-to-day life. How do you find those other alongsiders or encourage them to be the, the local, you know, we often refer to them as local champions, but it's a little different that are out there in places where you've spent the last 20 years. What's interesting is, is that sometimes the reason we don't see our own gifts or the gifts of another person are the exact same reasons why we don't necessarily see the gifts of the organism that we call the neighborhood. In a sense, you could say that a phenomenon is, a real phenomenon is this thing called the invisible neighborhood. Um, That's a good conceptual way of thinking about it. So we assume because we're in neighborhoods all the time that we can see them, that they're visible. But actually, there's lots of stuff that's not visible. And and I think gifts are not visible a lot of the time. Um, but also, I think the people who quietly go about weaving those connections of trust and going at the speed of trust, they're not visible either. You know, the people who are contributing with really no expectation of return, which is fundamentally a definition of what a gift is. A gift is when I give you something with no expectation that you'll give me something in return. And exchange is different. Exchange is where I give you something and I expect to get something back. You scratch my back, I scratch yours, give and take. And that's the world that most of us occupy. Now, that world blinds us to the invisible community. Because if you're wearing the exchange glasses, it's very hard to see the uh, gift in the community. Now, one of the people I think that are hard to see in communities are people who are relational, that their gift is that they're, they're listening, that they're connecting, that they're, they're building relationships, and then are prepared to move back from those relationships and not want to own them as their property. So why I say that is because I don't think that the connector, as I'm describing it, is the same as the leader or the networker or the entrepreneur. And it's not to in any way say that any of these things are bad or good. <laughs> it's just they're different, right? So if we're really interested in how we can find people in neighborhoods who are naturally kind of organically just taking on the functions of connecting, of really gently being alongside their neighbors, I think some of it's about turning our gaze away from what we've become enthralled to. That's in distracting us. It's amazing what distracts us. It's a bit like architecture, right? You look for the space, not the building (laughs) or the buildings. (laughs) It's the space that matters. So it's the same in community life. If you can kind of move your gaze a little, um, and again, McLuhan's uh, great insight, you know, look at the problem, not as the problem, but as the casing of the solution. And then 
be more curious and be more curious again. And you'll find connectors. But I think what most people are looking for is they're looking for leaders. The great dream of the mythic hero, you know, comes and sorts the problem out. The better chairperson of our group, you know, or this even more bizarre cult-like um, obsession that we have these days with having minutes and, you know, uh, Robert's Rules of Orders and, uh, you know, constitutions and such like. So, I mean, all of that stuff, these are all blind alleys of which we send community to die, you know, committees. <laughs> so um, if we could just take our distractibility and kind of do something with it, I think, and, and just zone in a little bit on those spaces, we'll see that there's plenty of people who are not into meetings, who are not chairing committees, who are not bureaucratic people, um, but are gently building relationships. So it's happening already. It's there already. Uh, we just need different spectacles on to see it, I think. And that's the starting point. And then not turn them into something, not say, oh, wonderful, we found all the connectors. Now let's call them our volunteers and give them a special name and give them a badge, you know, because they all work for the council now. Because that often happens, sadly. You know, this is kind of the imperial impulse takes over and suddenly we start trying to corral and organize these people. Yeah, it's interesting. You see the successes that someone's or a group of people or however they've arranged themselves that they're having. And I believe it's, again, a fear-based approach because then it's, well, let's jump in because they've had all the success. They're, I guess, bound to go wrong any second now if we don't slap some sort of organization on this. I honestly believe in a lot of this as you pointed out to you know the need for minutes and all that is this idea that that type of structure will mm. protect you in you know the broader sense of of you as a group or, or whoever's working on this from these impending mistakes that you're sure you're about to make like no if if it was working however you self organized maybe that's okay for that system there's other times when of course you need to you know, to have uh, the more um, rigid and, and, and formalized approach. But again, it's not the, you know, one solution uh, fits all the problems. It's uh, so Absolutely. I think that's something that people need to understand. Just trust however your relationships are self-organizing and let them evolve and they will find their level point where they function well. And you can then translate it as necessary as you're moving forward. And it, it's understanding the limits of things. I think sometimes we lose in community life, we lose the focus um, and start to organize at the behest of the funder or the outside organization that we think is going to give us funding. So we start kind of organizing ourselves in the image and likeness of the institution. When in fact, what drew people together was community, not institution. So it's like, you know, we start out as a circle and it's really interesting, you, you know, if you have the basic structure, the idea of a campfire in the snow, it's fascinating. Whatever way you build the uh, fire, the pyre, as they say, it doesn't matter because in snow, whatever way you've built it, the fire will always create a circle in the snow. So it doesn't matter what way you structure, it will always create a circle. So that's that's nature's kind of geometry lesson, mm -hmm. right? In formal contractual terms, the impulse of the institution is to form triangles. And it's almost inevitable. 
where the few can control the many. So there has to be an apex. I think an awful lot of what has happened in community life is, is as more and more communities have become grant dependent, they have been forced to move from being the circle to being the triangle. So there's more and more of an impulse to make it about compliance, about following rules, about the absence of intimacy, the depersonalization. So you hear bizarre things like you would never hear in a community. Like, I'd like to make a point through the chair, please. Where does that come from? You know, this is not something you can imagine being at your family dinner table and somebody saying, I'd like to make a point through the chair, please. So they're mimicking the institution in order to please the institution in the hope that they will be funded by the institution to do the stuff that the institution wants them to do. And then they wake up one day and they realize they're not doing what it is they had a passion for in the first place. And it's not working, but now they've taken the money, so they have to keep going. And we see that. So if we can take the premise, these funding sources, these institutions are well-meaning, are intending to do what they, that truly what they're saying at face value. But even with that, at the best circumstance, it is far too often even just distracting. I've seen that so many times, uh, and, and I might be repeating a little bit of what you said, but it, even between institutions, I've seen it so many times at the local government level where provincial or federal funds are made for a particular study. And all of a sudden, every municipality is doing that same kind of, be it a heritage study or, uh, you know, quite often there'll be environmentally related things, you know, tree canopy study and that. And they're losing the point is like, was that on your list of things to do between now and forever? And it's like, no, it never was. But now it is the most important thing. So they burn up the money with the funding. Yeah, they do some good. But because it wasn't born of the community or of a critical mass of the community that continues life, because these things are never that far off, there's, there's an interest, right? There's, they're not completely made up from whole cloth, but then it doesn't live on beyond that. So the study is done. Yeah, you brought some people together, you sort of solved a problem, but then there's no implementation of the results and there's no one internalizes that into the way they're going to live their life as citizens and community members. And so you see that even with the best intentions, it goes sideways. So knowing all that and the changes we're, you know, undertaking here, where we've just come under all these pressures with COVID, do you see things or how do you see the future changing in in these aspects of how community um, will move forward? Because actually community has gotten so many people through this terrible global Mm -hmm. pandemic. You highlighted at the beginning of the conversation how it's had some changes that were positive for you on a personal level, for your family, for your neighborhood. We're having this across the globe conversation right now. Are the things where we are now adapting and have taken this pressure that nature has put upon us and we're going to come out with community being being different and, and hopefully you're going to say that there's ways it's going to be better? Well, if we take it that community is a verb, that it's something that we do and it's 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 I'm trying to think of a, a better word than hyper local, but it's it's very small. That really the conversation we're trying to have now is a mass local conversation. So you take a scale of a nation like Canada, it's massive, it's massive geographically, it's massive conceptually, it's massive practically in, in terms of governance. But all over Canada, you have neighborhoods, you have villages, you have small uh, townships, you know, uh, small town places. 
And my hope, my great hope is in those places, pre-COVID, during COVID and post-COVID. There's a very strong likelihood, I think, um, from what I understand of the science, that there will be other pandemics in our lifetime. You know, so I think understanding how we actually move into what might be called a pandemic conscious future, how we flourish forward fairly instead of this nonsense of building back better, which I just totally reject. That's a whole other discussion, that, yes. Yeah, but I think some of that is about going back to what we started with, this idea that the neighborhood is the nursery of democracy, that the neighborhood is the primary unit of change out of which we can co-create safety, wisdom, justice, uh, care, um, and much more sustainable ways of being in our local biospheres and hopefully also much juster ways around distributing wealth, right? Now, my great belief is, is that mostly at that scale, that kind of local scale, you can get a lot done, not everything. So I'm, I'm with Murray Butchen, uh, or Butchen on the idea of municipalism. And we've seen that, you know, the strength of the mayors across all North America has been really quite telling, actually, over the course of the, uh, the last year. So I think municipalism is an important scale as well. It's almost like Russian dolls, isn't it? But it's, it's the principle of subsidiarity, right? So there are, you always get discredited and you kind of will, I think, raise the ire of suspicious folks, folks that are dubious if you say, well, it's all about neighborhoods. You know, we just got to build neighborhoods up. If we do that, everything will be fine. Well, no, it won't. There's, there, there are limits to local. There are things that cannot be done locally. But the point we're making is so much more nuanced than that. It's a point which says, the principle of subsidiarity, and it's really come home to roost in terms of the distribution of vaccines in Canada, but the principle of subsidiarity is really important. So there's certain things that can be done at neighborhood level. There's certain things that can be done at municipal level and state level and federal level and so on. And we get that. And that's really out of harmony at the moment. It really is. And some of that is just simply because we haven't done the stewardship work of really taking care to figure out how we fulfill that principle of you never take on a problem that doesn't belong to you. And in all kinds of ways, central governments have appropriated functions. You know, municipal governments have appropriated functions. Neighborhoods sometimes have appropriated functions that maybe belong to a local association and so forth. So the kind of acquisitive nature, which is the opposite of indigenous wisdom, of living in right relationship, living respectfully, uh, is something we've all been confronted with. Now, your question is, have we had enough of a reckoning <laughs> to actually wake up and sort of do something about that? And I think at this point, you've got the option between expectation and hope. And I think we have to go with hope. But I think it would be naive to expect. I, I have no great expectation that the world is going to be a better place, that everything is going to be transferred. But I do hope. And where I place my hope and why I base my hope, you know, the actions of local people in communities is because largely that nature, that scale of things, it seems, it kind of seems to me to be how we show up, you know. We're tribal in the best and the worst sense of the term. And I think part of what has happened is that we've become so dislocated and so dissociated and so disembodied and so pixelated in a lot of ways, from 
the principle of I am my brother, sister's planet's keeper, and outside my door today, what will I do? That it's really hard to actually show up. So in all kinds of ways, I think, you know, the psychological principle of dissociation, disconnection, it's a really big issue. The dislocation from the idea that I'm living in lockdown right now, and that's connected with what people have done uh, in terms of deforestation and, uh, you know, other forms of geopolitical abuse and harm to the planet. It's a hard idea for people to hold on to. But I think over the we've had about a year to kind of come to reckoning with that. And I think more and more people are beginning to see that. They're beginning to see that there are people who have had to make invidious choices between their lives and their livelihoods. And they're beginning to see that. They're beginning to see that in a pandemic, just the same as in a heat wave, that certain people are more likely to die. Older people living on their own in poor substandard urban housing in poverty, typically women, particularly women of color, die more. And I hope, I really hope that our humanity feels disgust and feels some sense of a calling to respond to that. And certainly what I'm seeing in my neighborhood and in other neighborhoods that I work around the world is we are. The other thing that I'm seeing is, is that a lot of professionals have been humbled. So about a year ago, uh, it's almost like a hydraulic relationship. And I talk about this in my new book. But about a year ago, uh, a very significant experiment happened, which I, I'm not sure has been reported uh, very well on. And it's an experiment about the relationship between civic action and civic power, mutual power, if you like. I think you call them caremongering groups in Canada and the power of agencies and institutions. And around about March, April, May, what happened was folks in the institutional world started to be furloughed. So institutions started hitting the limits of their own capacity. In different countries, you heard prime ministers saying, please stay at home, please watch out for your neighbors. Because if you don't, now this is interesting, if you don't, your healthcare system will be overrun. In the UK, Boris Johnson, I can't say his name without having a, a giggle for some <laughs> reason. You can put the pieces together <laughs> yourself. But Boris Johnson said, you must care for your neighbors and you must stay at home and comply with the rules of the public health experts. Because if you don't, your, pre your precious NHS will be overrun. And it worked, actually. You know, people even sort of banged pots and clapped out their windows every Thursday evening at seven o'clock for their precious NHS. And I get it to a point. It's a kind of a social movement thing, and it defines the UK psyche. But in many respects, actually, what happened during those months is people produced their health together in their neighborhoods with their neighbors. The front line became their neighborhoods. The first responders became their neighbors. So I often felt that they should start at six o'clock clapping each other, and then by seven, they can clap the NHS. <laughs> um, or maybe the NHS could have been humble enough to come back and during the winter period say, we saw something that we didn't see through the institutional lens. When we looked at health through the eyes of the state, we saw that health was something that doctors and hospitals and medical fraternities produce. But over those period of months, all over the world, we saw that care mongers and mutual aid groups and so on and so forth are actually health creating. You're not just health consuming, you produced health. And at the very time when our institution hit its limits, 
you got you hit your stride. So like a hydraulic relationship, one goes down, the other goes up. It's a basic principle of hydraulic. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a hydraulic effect. And sadly, I don't think that either communities or institutions recognized it enough. So it's like when the institutional world came back again, it was like, community, oh, thank goodness. And the institutional world, right up again in terms of dominion. And I think one of the great challenges, I mean, you will figure out the AstraZeneca versus Johnson, versus, you know, you'll figure out the vaccine stuff. And you and there are still reckonings to be had with that in terms of people of color, First Nations, who do not trust your institutions in Canada and won't engage. And there will be a lot of pain still to be experienced. I, I really believe that. I think it's profoundly naive, actually, to think that, you know, we vac- we'll get the critical mass of people vaccinated and everything will be well. Because in a sense, that's a kind of nationalist idea as well as being challenged. You know, when you look at the the level of angst and, and the trauma and tragedy that's happening at the moment in India and to kind of perpetuate a narrative that says, well, once we're okay, you know, hump you, Jack. Mm-hmm. It's just appalling to even entertain. Um, so I think there's a long way to go, you know, but I do feel largely that what we will say to each other is community is not a nice to have anymore. It's an absolute necessity. It's not just for a pandemic, it's for life. And uh, if we do that, I think we could actually create a huge amount of alternate uh, possibilities. But that requires us remembering what we did during the pandemic, particularly the first lockdown as citizens. And it requires humility on the part of professionals, the human services, who are prepared to hand credit away and actually applaud citizen capacity. Uh, And that I'm not sure about. I have no expectation that will happen but I'm hopeful. I'm with you on that hope and that sense of trust that it will happen. Some of what you were describing, I think, was that the broad sense of what we refer to as community was exercising long atrophied muscles. And maybe that's why when the more institutional systems started to kind of regain their feet, there was a little bit of a sigh of relief because it was hard because we weren't used to it anymore. I don't think that's a permanent circumstance. I think it will come back stronger. We've recognized for sure the greater connection to meaningful access to nature and our health. And I think we've been reawoken to the need and its relationship to our health in terms of having that connection to community. I think those things are are, are happening at the same time. And I am uh, hopeful that that is one of the things that will come out of this. I'm actually going to say that maybe this is the the perfect time to kind of wrap up this discussion. As always, my discussions with you, uh, I am I feel privileged, and I thank you for for this gift that you've given to me and to the folks listening to this right now. And uh, hopefully, we can have uh, another conversation in the future. Uh, with that, I thank you very much. Thank you. Can I just say one last thing? Always. I think it's important to say that one of the things that came home to roost for me is is that when I walk in nature, I am nature too. So it's really important to say like the word um, natal and nature come from the same source. We are nature and it goes against our nature to be disconnected. And sadly, a lot of modern life is like a sausage machine 
that pulls us in and grinds us and it goes against our nature. So I think that's the great revolution we need to start encouraging and, and rekindling. Can we actually just be with our own nature? You know, it is not helpful to be any other way. It's just the way we're designed, you know. So, And uh, it's always a joy to be with you because I actually feel that these conversations are so natural. They play into our respective nature and our need to be friends, to be connected, to be convivial. Uh, to be neighborly. So I'd be only too happy uh, to do this again and often. Thank you. Be well. Thanks, Rob.